you have to imagine crazy things in order to take the next steps. It all begins with imagination. Welcome to What The If. Welcome back. If you've been here before, I'm glad you survived our last journey, or whatever was the last journey you listened to. Most people do survive. If you're new, you're fairly guaranteed to survive. This is not Jurassic Park. Yeah, but major injuries are common. Yeah, yeah. Please keep your arms and legs inside the if at all times. Because this show is called What the If. Why is it called What the If? Matt Stanley, go. We take something and about, you know, reality, the universe, history, and we change it. And then we ask, what would be different? And then we get upset about it. That's right. Like, we're the rude ones tinkering with the universe. And then we get mad because it... Because we tinkered with the universe. It misbehaves. It's also a game. We think about it as a game. This is a game. It's a way to learn science by using science fiction in a way or improv or improv science fiction or just sheer wackiness. Yeah, whatever the Venn diagram of all of those is. Exactly. Exactly. A Venn diagram was an alternative title, but I think what the if is better. Oh, yeah. And uh, last week, we uh, ended with a cliffhanger, something we hadn't done in a while. A literal, a literal cliffhanger. That's right. Actually getting ready to fall off of a cliff. Yeah. Actually falling off a cliff because the subject is gravity. It's a very weighty subject. I apologize. I was just listening to Seth Shostak's awesome podcast, from the SETI Institute, Big Picture Science. I'm just throwing out a shout out there, a free plug. And Seth Shostak, if you know him, he is the master of puns. So, hence, I'm, I may throw in the occasional left turn pun there. So try to keep up. Here we go. I'm Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker. Matt Stanley, you are a professor of... The history of science. woo at New York University in beautiful Washington Square, New York City. So, as a historian of science, uh, what I love about that is that you know not only the his not only the not only science, let's say, like current science, known science, but you know how we, how we got there and who it was that got us there. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. Whether they intended to do that or not, they got wrapped into the the stream of history of science. Was there anyone who didn't intend to make some great scientific discovery, maybe wasn't even a scientist, but suddenly found something? Or? Well, I mean, the uh, you know the modern category of scientist is actually pretty new, so whether or not. You know, James Jewell messing around with fermentation so he can make better beer 
and then accidentally discovering conservation of energy. Like, I don't know if that counts. <laughs> but that tradition continues in science, making better beer. Quite familiar with many scientific labs where they are working. Although the thing these days is coffee. People. That's true. Coffee is certainly much more common than beer in labs. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so we were we, uh, last week, we, we spent some time in the mind of Aristotle, a Greek guy. Did he, he called himself a philosopher, I guess? What did he call uh, him? Yeah, a lover of knowledge. A lover of, ooh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Next time you're asked something at a party, how do you self-identify? You could say lover of knowledge. Okay. I'm a lover of knowledge. That's yeah. pretty good. That's pretty good. And here's the real what the if that we were doing. What the if you uh, or me, as an example, a lay person, meaning a person who lays around a lot instead of <laughs> a lover of knowledge, but also a lover of just laying about. And it, you, just, you decided to figure out some great scientific mystery like gravity, which, by the way, if you enjoy laying about, gravity is a big part of that. It's probably yeah, that's right. It's very hard to lay about without gravity. That's right. And it's the reason you don't feel like getting up, perhaps. <laughs> right. Or it's the day after Thanksgiving and you just had a whole lot of food. So, yeah, like, like somebody just, you know, ordinary schmo, as my grandfather would say, decides, hey, what's, what's all this with things falling down? I think we touched on it a little bit last week, but I, I ask again, I feel like gravity is not something that a lot of people think about. I'm a little bit obsessed with it. <laughs> well, I think it's one of these things that's so universal and omnipresent that we stop thinking about it. Like air, right? Nobody stops to think about every breath they're taking unless they're in a yoga class or something. And similarly, nobody stops to think about gravity until they're lifting something very heavy and then suddenly are very, very concerned about it. That's right. That's right. And, or they're rock climbing, another instance. Or they're rock climbing. Yes, that's a good incentive too. <laughs> it's a rock climbing. By the way, here's another shout out. Um, one of my editing mentors edited this incredible film, Free Solo, which is out now, oh. about the guy who climbed El Capitan in Yosemite, the enormous, practically sheer cliff. Oh, yeah. And he did it without ropes and without any help. So Free Solo isn't about getting a rebel smuggler out of an imperial prison? <laughs> oh, how did I <laughs> miss that? <laughs> That's fantastic. That could be another reason why the movie is doing so well. Uh, <laughs> Everybody goes thinking it's a Star Wars movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Free Solo. Also, Solo is like one of the lesser known candies. Candies? Oh, I did not know. There is that. a candy called Solo. It's, I don't even know if they still make it, but it was sort of like a little, like a little Reese's shaped, Reese's cup shaped thing, but with, I don't know, something else in it. Free Solo for everybody. But yeah, people don't think about gravity. And... It's it, you know what? I just realized why I'm, I have. I don't think I've been obsessed with gravity my whole life. I think it was when 
when we met and I was producing this documentary about Einstein, mm-hmm. the, <laughs> the cat, this is how you know it's a podcast. The cat's going crazy in the background. I don't know if you hear it, but just totally insane. Just totally went berserk. When, I think whenever I say Einstein, Einstein. <laughs> yeah, she goes crazy. That's somewhat alarming if your cats know the name Einstein. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I grew up learning that it was like a magnetic force. It's it's a and, and it's always talked about that way, the force of gravity. Yes, that's right. So that's that's Newton's formulation that uh, gravity is a force. And as you say, it's uh, analogous to a force between magnets. So that strange sense of you can't see it or touch it, but you can uh, observe its effects quite clearly. Yeah. And and I think 99.999999% of people on the planet think of it as that. They're just like, oh, yeah, why do things fall down? Well, the earth pulls them down. Yeah. Right. Why are we... Why do we feel gravity? Well, the Earth is pulling us down. And we'll we'll get to this later, perhaps at the end of this chain. But Einstein showed this is where this is this is the direction we're all going. Humanity will someday learn that it's not it's not a force at all. It's warped space-time. Crazy. And so so since I learned that, it's totally weird to me. Now it's, it's much more mysterious. And interesting. Yeah. Everybody loves a good mystery. Exactly. So, back uh, to the layperson. They don't even think it's a magnetic force. Right? Right. Yeah. Where we ended up with last time, I think, was if you just kind of wander around and watch some things fall down. One of the conclusions you can come to, which was Aristotle's, is that heavy objects, like or earthy objects would be Aristotle's term, but we might think of them as solid objects, like to go to a particular place. And that particular place is down, and it's kind of tautological here, right? But how do you know which way is down? Well, it's the direction that things like to fall. And what direction do things like to fall? Well, down. Yeah, yeah so so interesting. Aristotle's observation, just to recap real quick, he didn't think about it as a force at all. I don't know. Do you think it's because were they not familiar with magnets or things like that? Force was not the obvious category, but rather it seemed like things did stuff themselves, right? So it wasn't that a force was pulling on the rock, it's that the rock was trying to get somewhere. And unless you unless you got in that rock's way, it would just go. And, yeah, if you get in its way, it's going to be, it's not going to take no for an answer. Hit you. Uh, that's right. It, it will have strong feelings about completing its motion, regardless of whether your face is in the way. <laughs> it's like you getting between me and my achieving my greatest potential 
by reaching the center of the earth, which is the center of the universe, if you're getting in my way, forget it. This is a dream of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's got, it's got kind of a self-help vibe because (laughs) Aristotle will talk about it in terms of potential. That is everything in the universe tries to fulfill its potential. And for a person that's being a rational, ethical being and uh, a piece of art tries to, you know, perfectly capture the, the sublime or uh, perfectly achieve an aesthetic and a rock tries to get to the center of the universe. This tells us perhaps more about the man, Aristotle, than the actual science. Clearly striving for, like, he was clearly very ambitious or, right? Oh, yeah. Try, tries to explain everything. Yeah. He really wanted to reach his potential. And therefore, everything around him seemed to be doing the same thing. It's interesting. So, personification is inevitable in people. So, so this, uh, the, our 99% layperson is likely to do that. We're all likely to do that. Although less so less so now in the age of science, I feel like, than we might have in the past. But, yeah. Nowadays, scientists often discourage anthropomorphism. But, it's, but it is a natural way to explain things around you, right? So... You know, Aristotle says babies grow into adults, acorns grow into trees. What's the equivalent for rocks? It's moving in a particular way. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. And again, what, what it's a, such a wild way to look at the world around you that all these, every single thing around you is just yearning and straining and trying to go down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And it's uh, an important observation is that they're all frustrated too, right? None of the rocks you see are actually where they want to be. They're the equivalent of the acorns that don't land on good soil and never actually turn into a tree. So the 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 part of the universe where we live is this area of eternally frustrated potential. (laughs) Nothing ever fulfills its perfection here where we live. So again, perhaps an insight that Aristotle, you know, was a little neurotic, uh, like many philosophers or New Yorkers. (laughs) (laughs) Like he would have lived in New York. Um, he'd likely be a New York intellectual these days. Yeah. And his ideas last a thousand years, and that's where we left off. So, what what was the next person to say, uh, hey, wait a second, let's rethink this? So, Aristotle's system works really well, and as you said, it tells us something about him in that Uh, It answers certain kinds of questions, and specifically, it answers why questions. Why does the rock go downwards? And the answer you get is because that's where it wants to be, or that's its natural place in the universe. 
And that's a particular kind of explanation that's, that makes you feel good, depending on what you want to know. But what it's not very good for is doing something like predicting where a cannonball is going to land after you shoot it. Oh, right. Like, where does it want to land? Right. So it'll give you this general sense. If I shoot a cannonball upward, it'll go down eventually. But that's not what you want. You want to know whether uh, you want to know how to set up your cannon so you can knock down the walls of Constantinople. Right. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah, as, as we all do. Right. Except those of you, our listeners in Constantinople, I apologize. Uh, Istanbul. Yeah, today. Oh, Istanbul. Because yeah. I yes. So if you're a philosopher, Aristotle's system sort of answers the questions you might have about gravity. If you're someone who's trying to do something practical, like blow something up or construct a building, then it's not so helpful to just have the why answer. You might want something more precise that actually helps you build your church or whatever. Now, actually... When we think of ancient Greece, one of the first things we think about is the temples, Greek temples. And those things were built out of stone and were extremely heavy and must have been very difficult to build. So those guys who were building the Acropolis, let's say, is that before Aristotle? Yes, that is before Aristotle, yeah. Oh, so they didn't yet have... But it's the same classical era. Might there have been people building temples thinking... Oh, well, these, this thing is so heavy, it really wants to go down. Yeah, so classical architecture of, say, the Greek variety, generally, or with this is, there's a lot of speculation involved here. It doesn't seem that they had general principles. Like, nobody sat down and calculated out the right size of rock for the Parthenon. But rather, they were extremely skilled empirical builders. That is, they had built so many things over so many generations that they were really good at just estimating. Saying, okay, we probably want this, and we want this, and we want this. But no one sits down and says, okay, based on what I know about gravity and the strength of wood, we should make our beam a foot wide. And yet, the thing they were, and this is one of the things I found most fascinating, they were extremely obsessed, uh, gifted, talented, and focused on the aesthetics of the temple. In other words, how it looked to people. For instance, they they noticed that when you have a long row, of, let's say a long row of stairs, when it was the side of the temple is very long, uh, they actually are very slightly curved inward. Be, to counteract the illusion that, I guess, the stairs would look like they were bulging outwards. Like, there's all yep. kinds of optical illusions they account. That's for. right. So, so nowadays, we would say, okay, we, we understand that there is this optical illusion, and we know it has this percent effect from this distance away. So we would sit down and calculate and say, okay, we need to change the shape of the pillars by four inches to compensate for this. That's probably not what they did, what the Greeks did, but rather they built something. Somebody looked at it and said, that doesn't look quite right. Let's trim out the middle of those pillars and then trim it some more and say, okay, that looks about right. 
Although I, I'm guessing that eventually they, they had established that like, okay, well, this is what you need to do. Yeah, you'd get these rules of thumb. So then the old architect would say to the new architect, oh, that's, gonna, that's not going to look right. You need to change this. And, and then if that young architect was a philosopher, they would say, why? Uh-huh. Why do I need to change that? And then suddenly they're a philosopher instead of an architect. And then the architect, presumably, would say, I don't care. Just build the damn temple. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's the, the big difference between sort of philosophy versus practice in the ancient world is the philosophers are the ones who ask why. And then there's people like architects and engineers who actually build stuff and they don't care about why. And that's the great division. I love architecture and I have to, I've stepped into a tiny puddle of knowledge here. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of gravity, the Greek temples very much are designed around not only looking, you know, wanting to look straight instead of curved by accident because of optical illusions or whatever, but they're also really designed to express gravity. The columns actually bulge out a little bit so that they look like they they are holding up the roof, but they want it to look like that's what's happening. And then the the the, the ionic, you know, there's different t- types of capitals at the top of the column, right? And one of them is ionic, which is like a shell, it's supposed to be a seashell. And the idea was like, uh. here's this, this column is showing you how heavy this roof is that we're holding up. This incredible oh, okay. stone. Yeah. And yet, actually, between that and the roof is this incredibly fragile, lightweight shell. And so it's, t- it's like doing this weird thing of like simultaneously saying it's extremely heavy, but also magically light. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Or also points to earth and sky. So um, I say that all only to say that clearly people were thinking about gravity a lot in many different ways. Sure. Yeah, that's right. And in different ways, I think, is the, the thing to emphasize here. Um, so as long as you have the, the people asking why, separate from the people asking how, how can I build this, then Aristotle's system works fine. But once you start getting those two groups of people together and talking to each other about the same problems, then it becomes clear that it's not quite adequate. And in particular, it's not very good for calculating things. So if you want to calculate a trajectory, calculate the the width of a beam ahead of time, it's not so helpful for that. So by the Renaissance era, you start getting people like, say, Galileo, who, who start to point out that, you know, we mathematicians are really good at calculating stuff having to do with gravity. Maybe you should listen to us on the question of what gravity is. Maybe we should have something to say about the why as well. You were mentioning that mathematicians were dismissed for a long time. Yeah, and again, this is... This is the the ancient. This is still the ancient Greek tradition, the Aristotelian tradition, that thinking about things is totally different than doing things, and thinking about things is better. Right? Ah, uh, or actually, feeling may be more the. Ter- it's interesting because I can see that this is where art and science 
begin to divide, I suppose, or science is born out of art. Yeah. So, I mean, art in the so the the science art distinction is Aristotle's essentially. Oh. Um, but what uh, he meant by art is a little different than what we mean. So he's not he's not thinking about fine art, but rather art in the sense of artifact. So, so if you make things, you're you're doing art. If you make tools, you're an artist that built buildings. So anything that gets your hands dirty is an art in the, the classical Greek sense. And that could be a high artist or a low artist, or it didn't matter. Yeah, but that's not, they were all lumped in as inferior. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And we still get some of that today, right? I mean, it's, um, uh, if you're, it doesn't matter how good a plumber you are, people are going to think of you as inferior to the worst doctor. That's right. Yes. We value different kinds of labor. Yep. Yep. For sure. Oscar Wilde attempted to own this alleged fault of art by saying all art is quite useless. <laughs> it has to be useless for it to be great art. Well, and that's that's that would be a refutation of the Aristotelian division um, because Aristotelian art in the sense of artifact is all the useful things, doing things because you have to, because they have some practical benefit, as opposed to the philosopher who can just think about the truth. So Wilde there is trying to reclaim some of the useful, the uselessness for art as well. So these mathematicians are saying we can calculate. Yeah, so they say we can calculate all sorts of important things that are clearly related to gravity. And therefore, people like Galileo and Copernicus say, you should also trust us on the philosophical question of what gravity is and how it works. Uh, and the philosophers say, no, that's a purely philosophical question. And this becomes one of the great debates of of the science of the Renaissance era is, is it useful? Is the kind of knowledge you get by putting hands on something useful for broader philosophical questions? Like what is gravity? Oh, right. Cause I, I can see how Aristotle's idea that everything wants to go down doesn't help you do anything. It exactly. Gives, it gives you a very satisfying explanation, but you got this cannonball, which unfortunately I'm guessing the military leads, military desires lead yep. a lot. But you need to know where that cannonball is going to go. Once you figure out how to calculate that one, the idea that you could use the same calculation for all the cannonballs ever would be extremely powerful. Now you've really learned something. Now you can actually move forward. Yep, that's the idea. But that's, but that's a big social convention that they have to unpack. Uh, that is the people with their hands. So, you know, working with cannonballs is a dirty business. You get iron filings everywhere and there's gunpowder burns and stains on your clothes. And when you go into the Agora and talk to the philosopher <laughs> in their pristine toga, yeah. Yeah. they say, what are you doing here? <laughs> right? This is, a, this is a place for ideas, not for people with dirty hands. And it takes a long time to persuade 
intellectual communities, that that kind of hands-on expertise is worthwhile. So is it is it the military guys who get things over the hump? That is one of the big incentives to a better understanding of gravity and inertia and motion generally. This is one of the, the, the big questions. So there, there's kind of a... Um, intermediary theory called impetus theory, which tries to bring together some of this practical expertise and deeper philosophical questions about why, say, a cannonball goes a certain distance, but not any further. doesn't work particularly well, but people are, the point I want to say is people are still thinking about this deeply. It's not like it's a purely dogmatic situation where no one is allowed to question Aristotle. There's plenty of that going on. It's just not particularly productive. So at some point, somebody comes along with the idea. Let's say that I've, I've gone through the phase of, you know, for a while I had this idea that, oh, maybe the things want to go down or something, or there's just some way I can, I, I thought of maybe many, many different ways to explain what's happening, but gives me no predictive power. That's a huge leap, I guess, the right prediction Actually, I imagine not just military, but for instance, we were talking about architects. I'm sure the architects, as they built more and more, for instance, eventually we get to building cathedrals and you know bigger and bigger things. They want to know: is this going to fall down? Like a lot, a lot of early, early architecture overcompensates for things. Yeah, the the scale of things changes quite a bit too, right? If you're building something like Notre Dame. That's uh, you've. It's extremely helpful to be able to plan stuff out ahead of time, if for no other reason than it takes a hundred years to build. So uh, you may not. You, you may want to have a grander plan than just the old architect saying, "Yeah, do it this way." And actually, you're motivated by disasters, right? I mean, there's uh, actually that even today, right? That's one of the greatest. We learn the most from disasters and accident engineering accidents, right? One of the earliest pyramids known in Egypt, I believe it's in Egypt, is a, a pyramid, they call it the bent pyramid. Uh, in other words, it goes up at one angle and then suddenly gets... Oh, it changes steep. halfway. Yeah. Right, and I think the the, philo- the idea was that maybe there had, there had been an original pyramid there that collapsed, and so they continued, and whoa, we better change the angle here, and that's how they learned what the best angle Yeah, is. I think that's, that's an excellent example of cl- what's clearly a, a empirical day-to-day experience of building, right? Nobody planned that out ahead of time. Somebody just realized it was starting to fall down halfway. So they're like, all right, let's change it. In fact, I believe there's another, there are other pyramids we can see that have collapsed, that it's believed may have collapsed at the time. It's not, yeah. not sort of okay. Okay. And I'm sure somebody lost their heads for that. So, but another, I was just going to say, another extremely common idea I think, as the layperson, that I might say is that I, it's the gods who move things, and, and it's the will of the gods, for instance. So if I want a, that cannonball to land in the right spot, I need to sacrifice a goat or something. That is, that is another possible explanation you can give. That goes out of fashion even well before Aristotle. Uh-huh. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah, so the usual division we have there is the, the pre-Socratic philosophers, so kind of two generations before Aristotle. You get people like 
Miletus and Democritus who reject those kinds of supernatural explanations and say, let's see if we can figure out the natural world just working on its own. Ah, so in what, what time period is Aristotle? Uh, Aristotle is around uh, 300 BCE. 300 BCE. So, so the pre-Socratics are like 400-ish BC. Oh, this is interesting. So I happen to be working on this documentary about a rabbi. So mm-hmm. I've had to learn a lot about the uh, history of religion in particular in what is now Israel and, and Jewish religion. And they were, uh, well, I was just, I was going to say that around that time, there, there was still a temple, I think. And in other words, religion was very much like there was a lot of the world that was going by gods are ruling everything. Yeah, well religion doesn't God. go doesn't yeah. go anywhere. You can you can all of the things we've been discussing are totally compatible with just about any kind of religious thought. But what I guess what what I'm realizing is that being the layperson that I am that oh, I see that the Greeks uh, were at least like they were moving beyond you're saying they were moving beyond religion or they were sort of Stepping outside of religion. It's not that they weren't religious, but it's that they didn't they didn't uh, use those kinds of explanations for things like why rocks fall. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. Right. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. They just said, let's separate that out. Um, they say there may be a better way of explaining that. Yeah. 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 Pretty cool. So then the next step is calculation. Uh, then the next step is calculation, yeah. And then once you're interested in calculation, you want something more from your explanations of gravity. So you want some version of the why answer, but you also want a lot of how. That is detailed descriptions of, of how those things work. And that's where, that's kind of what's sometimes called the Newtonian synthesis you get with, with Newton is this sense that you want a little of each, but you can't get perfect versions of either. So, so Newton famously says, I, I frame no hypothesis for gravity, which sounds weird to us because we would say something like, well, surely universal forces between all objects counts as a hypothesis, but that's not quite what he meant by that. What he meant was we can never really know the true nature of gravity because our knowledge is always going to be incomplete. You know, Aristotle thought he had the true nature of gravity explained. And Newton said, no, the best we can do is these proximate explanations. So force is a really good idea, but it's kind of vague and a little hazy. But it's, it's useful. So let's use this useful idea, even if we don't understand everything there is to know about gravity. So is Newton the first one to talk about force? The force? <laughs> kind of, it kind of evolves in the century before him or so. And in order to get, before force becomes a logical category, you need a sense of matter as kind of a passive thing. 
So, so for Aristotle, matter does stuff, right? It goes places and tries to make things happen. But then by the 17th century, you get with kind of the revival of atomism. You get the idea of matter as a purely passive, inert thing that gets operated on by outside entities. Sort of like Aristotle was kind of saying, well, the force is within the thing itself. Right. Yeah. Yes. So Descartes is usually uh, a good person to credit with making widespread this notion that matter is passive and only, only acted on by outside forces. What year is he? Uh, he publishes his great his contemporary of Galileo's, so 1630s. 1630s. So we've gone... A long way. Almost 2,000 years. Yeah. From Aristotle. And most of the world, as the lay people of the world, went about thinking... Everything wants to move. That's why it goes down. Yeah, that's right. And it's important to emphasize that when we say everybody, we're actually talking about a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the population, right? The vast majority of people have no interest or ability or leisure time to be thinking about these sorts of things. So there's this very small intellectual class. Well, I feel like maybe that's another reason for it. Longevity is that if you were to ask, even I imagine you're a, a peasant working in the field or something like that, and you ask yourself this over and over again, so eventually you, you might ask the wise person in town or something, and they would eventually you're going to get the, the Aristotle explanation, which is that things move and so easily grasp and seems it's so intuitively right, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, it fits. It's like that, that yeah, can that's be a exactly universal right. thing. And this is one of the... I think important differences between last episode and this one is that you can get to the Aristotelian system just by walking around and Mm. dropping stuff. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very hard to get to the Newtonian system that way. That is, you need to have some really sophisticated technical concepts. You need to have enough experience with precise projectiles or building structures such that you start to see the weaknesses in the Aristotelian system. And you've got to sit and do a whole bunch of experiments, right? You need a lot of leisure time and technical expertise. So there's an important sense in which the Newtonian system is better for various technical reasons, but it's actually much much less satisfying for sort of your average person walking around. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I f- that's another reason why I suppose people don't think about it very much is that I think we know now that the explanation is very complicated. So we're just like, well, you know, somebody, it's like somebody right. knows. Somebody out there knows it. Exactly. And it's on Wikipedia. So if I ever need to review it. Yeah. My plane doesn't fall out of the sky. So that's cool. And then, so then now, right, we, uh, you notice that your plane doesn't fall out of the sky. Yes. So you ask somebody smart who you trust. Why doesn't my plane fall out of the sky? And the answer they give has something to do with Newtonian forces. And you say, okay, all right, that's cool. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Other than, well, because the plane yearns to fly, <laughs> which actually still seems more right. You know, now I'm, I'm ruined now. I have uh, a, poisoned by Aristotle's ideas. 
<laughs> I will see everything in this in this term. I love it because it wants to. Be, it's just so positive. It's so like carpe diem. It is, and the, like you said, the the sense of the living in a universe in which all things are yearning and pushing and trying to make things happen is a beautiful one and lively and sometimes and then the the newtonian universe which i should say is not actually the one advocated by newton but we call it the newtonian universe of passive inert matter um this is sometimes called the shift to the disenchanted universe oh yeah exactly it's no longer (laughs) yeah it's no longer a universe of brilliant forces and excitement and pushing but rather this dry mechanical system. In fact, even Aristotle's idea is, is it's, it has more optimism in some ways than many of the re, a religious idea where, well, God or the gods move things, you know, it's all, they're moving the things around. It's all of their will, still kind of mechanistic. Like the idea that every single thing wants to be, like Aristotle was clearly a hippie. <laughs> I'm just getting it now. Oh, the toga. You know, we should have known just from the toga, I suppose, but everybody was wearing togas then. So, And and Newton was kind of a cranky guy, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Uh, perhaps the crankiest. Yeah. So, in fact, we can say that, you know, it sounds like Aristotle, I, I, he just seems like an awesome guy to me. Like, he must have been so enthusiastic about things. And, oh, we must reach your potential. Everything, right? He, he could have been a cult leader. Maybe he was, I guess. Little, professors could be. Uh, gurus, right? Gurus, sure. Uh, of, of their time, and uh, and then along comes Newton, this super cranky guy who doesn't want to go outside. This is I'm just the stereotype I have. Almost literally, actually, he, yeah. he, you know, he lived in Cambridge and just kind of did his own stuff and didn't much care what other people thought about it. And then gradually, people figure out that he's doing these amazing things. He gets invited down to London to show off his his telescope, which involves his theory of colors. And Robert Hooke disagrees with him, says, no, I think it's like this. And Newton takes his toys and goes home and like doesn't <laughs> talk to anybody Whoa. for years. Wow. And then it becomes this sort of great project of late 17th century England to try to get Newton to come talk to you about anything. But eventually, just like the, the simplest thing is that uh, simplest way to say it, I suppose, is that he figured out. Well, there you you there is a predictable mechanism operating here. There are laws of some kind, and they're just very complicated. Mm-hmm. For they thought they knew complicated. Wait till Einstein comes. Around. That's right. <laughs> it gets more and more complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's uh, that's fascinating. And and it, I suppose, it's at this point that if science wasn't already outside of the understanding of most of the world you're real like once he comes out well, newton invented calculus right mm-hmm. and immediately uh, yes yeah. that word just terrifies you, you say calculus in times square everybody's gonna run <laughs> just a few cool words i should say it gets physically behind. and not just conceptually separated in the sense of you need lots of mathematical background to understand things but also physically separated so aristotle hung out in the market. Huh. If if you wanted to go learn about stuff, you went to the market and you hung out. Actually, you, you walked with them. Uh. Aristotle and his followers would walk around. They're called, they were called the peripatetics, meaning uh. the people who walk around. Cool. Whereas come 
the age of experimentation, the Royal Society of London is a closed place. You have to be a fellow to be let in. So you can't even go see the experiments unless you're already qualified. Right. And that's and that's still how it is today. Right. You cannot just walk into Fermilab and see the experiments going on. A guard will stop you and say, (laughs) can I see your ID, please? And they say, and you say, well, why should I need an ID? I just want to learn about the universe. And they say, well, I'm sorry, but that's not enough anymore. Just (laughs) just loving knowledge is not sufficient. Right. You need to have a physics degree and be qualified, have letters of recommendation. Yeah, interesting. And you, you can, of course, go into a science museum, but those aren't the experiments. Although there are some exhibits they try to you know, show you a little bit of how, how the science was done. But it is very much a sort of like, this is it. These are the answers. Yeah. You know? That's right. Um, wow. This is, who knew, see, again, who knew? This began, this is what I love about what the if. It, you never know where it's going to take you. And we began with laying in bed and not wanting to get out. <laughs> and made our way all the way to super, you know, it was sort of even fleshed out uh, much more what Aristotle was like. And he's just super cool, like awesome. And then Newton, you know, eventually comes along 2,000 years later and uh, he's a little cranky. But we must appreciate both these people. We must. When we say standing up, we don't, we don't just stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say in, in, in mm-hmm. our world. We yep. are. Well, no, we're, we're not just standing on shores. We're, we're, uh, in living in the mood of giants. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's actually is a little bit more poetic. It's a little less powerful concept. Uh, right? Yeah, a little less punchy. Yeah. A little less punchy, exactly. <laughs> Uh, living in the mood of giants. Fun title, though. Well, thank you. This is this is again. We we keep finding new directions for what the ifs for ifs. Oh yes, there's all kinds of ifs. We've done there. all kinds of ifs. There's many genres of if we've discovered as we, as we approach episode our seventieth episode coming up. This may be it. I don't wow. know. Anyway, we're close. We're around there. So, thank you for listening uh, out there. Um, I'd love to know who who do you feel? Do you feel more like Aristotle? Which mood? Which mood room would you rather live in? Aristotle's? Would you like to walk around with Aristotle, or would you like to sit in a Newton's house? Where, by the way, don't touch anything, and and don't talk to him. Which would you? I, I kind of either one. I think either one. Ultimately, I might go for the Newton. <laughs> I sit in the room, it's cozy. You don't have to yeah. go out. You don't have to go to the market. I mean, what's so great about the market? It smells. Uh, you can buy stuff. It's true. Mm. You can buy stuff. Okay. Well, especially if it's like the Apple Store. Okay. Well, yeah. That's where. <laughs> if Aristotle was like in the Apple Store, like we're done. Um, uh, yeah, that would be weird. I'm good. Tell us what you thought. We'd love to hear from you. Feedback at whattheif.com is an email address that you can send your ideas to. You could send one word or two or however many you want. Uh, sometimes, Yeah, words are cheap. Words yeah. are cheap, especially on the internet. 
they're even cheaper on Twitter, where we are known as What the If Show at What the If Show on Twitter. Come visit us there as well. Sign up there and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. I know a lot of you enjoy just straight up listening on the web and or wherever, and that's totally fine. But if you don't want to have to think as much, now we're getting into my territory. If you're a real lay person and you just want to have the damn thing show up on your phone or listening device, uh, subscribe. If you don't know how to subscribe, all you have to do is go to our website, whattheif.com, whattheif.com, where you, you can also listen to all the episodes right there and learn about us if you're that hungry for knowledge thirsty yeah. for knowledge if you um, love the knowledge if you love the knowledge there's a little you know a little sip there and you can sub- click the word subscribe and a page comes up that just lists all the different devices so whichever one, all the different services iTunes Google Play etc all you do is click it boom you're done if you'd be so kind however when you go to those sites as to leave us a review we very much appreciate it. And a, or a rating. Give us some stars. Give us the stars. That's all we ask. The stars. <laughs> That's so much to ask. Is it so much? Give me the stars. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to end with uh, check the news. Um, I hope we all survive the dark matter hurricane, which is coming. Oh, yeah. Which I think is something we will pick up maybe next week uh, in, in the coming uh, What the F I thought that was pointed out to me by one of our most devoted ifers Kyle Crichton who, who, who shares many provoke, uh, thought-provoking things with us so maybe that's coming up thank you for listening Matt thank you very much for taking us through the land of togas very nice very nice very nice Next week, as we ponder the crank, what the disenchanted universe, mm-hmm. uh, we can't help but say we want to mess with that. Let's get some enchantment in there. And when we do, then we will begin to put our hands into the mire and the muck of the enchanted universe and stir it about we will be unable to resist screaming what the